In this episode of the Paid for EDM podcast, we'll learn about what metadata is, the importance of getting things standardized, all to help you get discovered and paid for your music. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Paid for EDM podcast, helping you build your business and career in the world of electronic dance music and helping you get paid what you deserve. Find the show on the web at paidforedm.com. Here is your host, Brian Hogg. Welcome to the show. I am super excited uh, because I just booked my trip to ADE 2015. Really looking forward to the panels, connecting with more people in the industry, and hopefully getting some more great guests for the show. My guest is Bill Wilson, who is the VP of Digital Strategy and Business Development for the Music Business Association. When you're releasing your music, you might think that Uh, You know, the music speaks for itself and having just the artists and the title of the track spelled out is enough, but it's really not. And if you want to get paid what you should for your music, the metadata on your work really needs to be there. And to find out more about what this metadata is and why it's important, here is my interview with Bill Wilson. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. So how about we start with uh, telling a little bit about yourself and uh, your kind of role at the Music Business Association? Sure. I started in the music business way back in the analog era in 1989 by starting a little New York City independent punk rock label called Blackout Records. And uh, I ran that for about 15 years, sometimes full-time, sometimes part-time, culminating in a deal uh, in the late 90s with MCA Records, um, which a year and a half later no longer existed. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, and then I kind of jumped ship uh, to my second love, which was technology. When the label kind of started, uh, you know, kind of started winding down, uh, and I worked for a few different startup companies, uh, and wound up then uh, running mobile at Atlantic Records for a couple of years. Uh, so that was evaluating new companies uh, in the mobile space, but also uh, my main gig was actually slinging ringtones to make sure that Plies and Ti and Flow Rider were. <laughs> Or right up front when people were looking to buy ringtones, That's um, awesome. which was good. Uh, and then uh, I got pinched by uh, what was then called NARM, the uh, Commerce Association in the U.S., uh, to kind of enhance the the digital programs that they had started. And that's, you know, almost seven years ago now. I can't even believe that. Uh, And my key responsibilities really are, you know, doing anything that serves the digital business community, uh, which includes uh, two main focuses, one being the, uh, you know, work on uh, the relationships between licensing and startups uh, and sort of the established legacy players in the business. And then the other piece of it Uh, being kind of, which is what I believe we're talking about today, which is a lot of the information infrastructure um, and the way information is exchanged uh, in the business, uh, including some of the metadata and operations piece of that on the the digital side. Absolutely. Yep. So you led right into it. Um, Yeah. So for a lot of listeners are likely just starting out uh, either as a label or an artist or what have you, Um, you know, they don't have any big songs or anything. I mean, I guess maybe a quick overview of the metadata uh, that you're, that you're talking about in terms of, I guess, a track and uh, you know, what's the motivation, I guess, for them to make sure that that's in line. Right. Well, I mean, the first thing to kind of, I guess, to really talk about is what is metadata, you know, and when you, the easiest way to kind of describe it is information about uh, an asset. 
Um, so you'll have an MP3 and it will have your artist name attached to it. That is metadata. Um, your, uh, your, the title of the track is metadata. The title of the album that it is associated with is metadata. Um, all of the things that you see basically listed on Spotify or RDO or any digital music service, um, any information about that music is you know, part of the larger description of what metadata is about. Um, so that's kind of the first piece. And, you know, what you see on a Spotify or, a, you know, an Apple Music or whatever you see is really kind of the consumer facing parts of metadata. But what you don't actually see is some of the underlying uh, metadata that's part of the commercial transactions between the digital storefronts or the radio services and ultimately the people that pay royalties. So, you know, why this is important, you know, in general, taking the macro kind of view of what is, you know, of what is metadata and what is the value here, it can be summed up very simply, which is metadata is money, you know, and metadata is the means by which your content is attributed to you. Your content can be discovered by fans on digital music services, and it's the mechanism for being paid. And, you know, it is the life's blood of the digital music economy. So if you're not paying attention to this, you are woefully uninformed about how your money gets back to you in the digital music economy. Right. So what are some examples of uh, getting paid? I mean, not just for streaming services, uh, but I think of used an example in the past, right, where um, uh, if someone wants to use your music as part of, you know, a, a video project or what have you, right, um, the importance of having that, that metadata there? Yeah, I, I mean, everybody needs to know how to reach you and how to, it's not, you know, with respect to, you know, for example, if somebody's looking for you for music synchronization and they can't find you or they don't know who you are, they don't know who your publishing company is, or they don't know the ISRC code, um, which is the number that's associated with a specific recording, um, you know, all of these represent difficulties. So there has to be a roadmap to finding you and paying you. And metadata provides that roadmap. So, I mean, you, you had a summit. How long have you been running the summit on metadata? Um, uh, the Music Metadata Summit, which is one of the products of the Music Business Association, which is musicbiz.org, because I'm shamelessly. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> it has been running for about three years. And the metadata work group was really started by a group of about six people. Um, who are very heavily involved in digital supply chain and operations. And it has expanded over the years to include now publishing companies and the uh, sound exchange in the U.S. who pays uh, the, the performance part of the, the, uh, the sound recording part of, of radio in the U.S., um, the, the PROs uh, and labels and publishers. Um, so we've established kind of this huge group of folks that are really looking at the challenges in the metadata space. And the Metadata Summit is really kind of our cornerstone annual event that we host every year at the, the, over, the overall Music Biz event. And we had this year standing room only room of about 150 people uh, in that room. So it just really you know, shows that you know, this is an issue in the music business and it's necessary for all the different parts in the food chain, whether it be a publisher or a label or a PRO or even artist or an artist manager, 
to understand and be educated about the issues and really be focused on the key word here, which is interoperability. All of these systems need to be interoperable. The music business needs to flow easily. And by way of an example, you know, when you go to a foreign country, for example, you know, um, you know, we'll go to Mexico, we'll go to the UK, you know, you can go to any country in the world pretty much and do a credit card transaction. Yep. You can go to any country in the world pretty much and get take out cash in the local currency. Now, what they don't have, unlike the music business, is they have standards that are actually fully in place for all of these high volume transact financial transactions to take place in real time. And when I go to that, you know, bank machine in Singapore, you know, there's not some sort of like hamster attached to a digital <laughs> that's kind of, you know, you know, sending smoke signals to another series of humans on the other side to to identify that transaction and look something up in a giant card catalog to find out if they can give me money or not. Yep. That is an enterprise level interoperable system that performs billions of transactions on, you know, in microseconds. And the music business is really kind of, you know, woefully behind in its ability to actually provide the same kind of solutions to people that need it. So that's what we discuss at these summits and how to kind of build a better, more interoperable, more transparent music business. Nice. So as uh, the Music Business Association is primarily U.S. based or are you guys looking at the interoperability as well? Or Yeah, we're a U.S. trade organization, but because many of our companies are global and they're headquartered here in the U.S. or they have very significant presence, we get involved in a lot of global issues and a lot of the, the global BD folks are you know core members of, of this group. But we do have um, different relationships. For example, our sister organization in the U.K. is called ERA, the Entertainment Re- uh, Retail Association. And, you know, they're very involved and they're kind of very, work with us a lot on international kind of issues. And we're very spiritually aligned on, I would say, uh, 99, if not 100% of what we what we are, are working on. Nice. And then so how have you seen things change uh, in terms of the interoperability since you kind of joined? Uh, music business like has has there been inroads to actually having a standard oh yeah and here are the things that you don't really kind of see as a musician or somebody who's not really in the business and frankly most people even in the business don't even know that these situations exist it's you know kind of what chris reed um who used to be at Warner and at Sony DADC and is now head of ops at, at Isolation Networks. He's the co-chair of our group. He always says it's it's kind of, you know, all this stuff happens in a basement in Burbank. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the people that really care about this are the people who are involved in kind of managing all of these solutions. And it's not really the most glamorous, glamorous thing, but um, because it does mean money, it does kind of bubble up now and it is, you know, continuing to bubble up as being a priority issue. So, um, one of the issues that's behind the scenes is the way that different record companies deliver all of the new releases to digital storefronts. And each one of those entities formerly had a different way of describing the fields, a different way of delivering the content, all in either XML or FTP or, you know, or some delivery mechanism that wasn't standardized across. So what happens is at the DSP, you know, just say, you know, I'll use a, I'll use a, a, co- a company that doesn't exist, but you'll get the gist of it. Mm-hmm. Just say it's a Spartio, 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> so Smartio wants to ingest content from label X, Y, and Z. Um, labels X, Y, and Z, or or even you know every single letter of the alphabet has a completely different way of providing them with the information that they, on their side, then need to normalize and throw bodies at and throw time and development money at organizing and making sure that they can just simply get things into their storefront. Now, which is really funny because when you work at a physical retail store, UPS shows up with a box and you throw it on a shelf. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an interesting innovation paradox that you have here when all these digital companies actually create more complexity in the marketplace. That's true. Um, so what we do is, uh, you know, years ago, there was a couple of different initiatives. Um, one was, uh, you know, was called MI3P, I believe, years ago um, that has, you know, because of various special interests, you know, a lot of these, these uh, programs die a horrible death. But there's one program called DDEX, the Digital Data Exchange, that created a, a truly amazing standard XML uh, feed that continues to iterate that everybody has pretty much adopted right now. It's called the ERN, the electronic release notification. And, you know, whether anybody in the business knows it or not, it went from zero adoption to, you know, a huge proliferation in, in music aside from a few legacy players um, to where we've normalized the delivery of music assets um, and continue to, to make that better. So, yes, that is a huge, huge, huge benefit. Uh, DDEX is a huge benefit to the industry. And then they're working on another standard. They have another standard called DSR, which on the flip side is normalizing reporting. That's is not as widespread, but is growing in popularity. And we hope to, you know, to, to keep evangelizing its adoption by all the digital services and the labels and the publishers over the course of the next several years. And that's reporting of, uh, of royalty, reporting uh, of, yeah. right? Just making it more transparent, making these big companies able to talk to each other in a more fluid way where they don't have to spend a lot of time deduping, debugging and taking crap data and making it usable for themselves. Right. It just, so it, it, it can flow back to the artist faster and easier and more transparently. Nice. Is there anything that artists or labels or anything can, can do to help push the, those kind of initiatives forward or. Yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, I mean, it sounds self-serving, but you know, adding your voice to the pitchforks and torches at the gates of people who are not supportive of this, um, is important. You know, we need, for example, um, you know, we need, you know, the organization, our organization, um, you know, there is no corollary, uh, in Canada for, 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 for music biz. Um, so adding voices to, you know, our work groups to, you know, continue to pepper the powers that be on the needs of the marketplace is important. Um, we need voices to socialize and to talk about, you know, how this is a real problem in the business and bad metadata means bad transparency, which means I don't get paid. Um, we need companies, uh, digital, you know, DSPs to participate in our work groups and in DDEX. You know, we need people to step up to the plate and become involved because just sitting back and watching other companies do it will mean that your interests are not taken care of. That oh, makes sense. And going back to the metadata then and uh, pushing that forward, electronic music versus other genres. I mean, are there additional complexities? I mean, just from the outset anyway, it seems like there's, there's a lot more sample usage and collaboration and and everything else that seems to happen on the electronic music uh, versus other formats, um, considerations that that kind of electronic artist should be taken into account? 
EDM has its own special set of, of issues and remix culture in general, hip hop, you know, no matter the genre, but, you know, remix culture in general, and I'll kind of summarize it in that way. Um, you know, in U.S. copyright law expressly, um, you know, anybody can cover a song under Section 115 of U.S. copyright law, but using what's called a derivative work, and that means essentially a sample, um, is subject to a completely different term and condition under copyright law, which is not adjudicated by any sort of um, – there's no adjudicated royalty rate enforced by it. So you need to have an a la carte license, which means that you have to – if you're going to use a sample, if you're doing a mix and you have you know, 20 songs in that, you know, if, you're, if you're doing the Grey album, right, there's a reason why that got taken down is because it used the Beatles and Jay-Z. <laughs> you know? yep. And you know, of those, the, you know, obviously the myriad songwriters – uh, you know, were not compensated for that, no matter how many streams that it received or downloads that it received. And that's a huge issue. So, you know, there are companies, uh, and I will disclaim that I am a consultant for this company. There's a company called Dubset um, that actually has a technology that's able to go into mixed content uh, and pull out, uh, identify and pull out all of the underlying derivative works and is working uh, currently towards a monetization solution so that remix culture can actually really be a part of the spot of the Spartios of the world, let's just say. Yes. <laughs> you know, all the PSPs. <laughs> um, and it's a great, and it, it, you know, and that's a great technology, but still, you know, it doesn't, it, it still makes sense for as a DJ is producing a mix that they think that they're going to post on a, you know, on a, on a, on a mix cloud or a sound cloud or whatever that they keep track of their Serato files, that they keep track of the underlying tracks that are in there. Um, because that's also part and parcel of reporting, uh, even if it's played on the radio, um, the underlying tracks that need to be reported to sound exchange. Um, that's important also. So, you know, DJs have extra administrivia to take care of if they're looking to monetize their mixed content, even if they're going to share it, because at some point that actually may get locked down as well. That's true. Yeah. It seems like certain certain streaming services are okay with it and others uh, will just take it right down if you don't have, I guess, prior copyright uh, or permission from each individual track that you're playing yeah, in your I mix, mean, right? YouTube especially, right? YouTube um, Content ID will identify songs in a mix. Yep. And, you know, any one label, any one of, you know, 25 or 30 rights holders within a mix can actually just, you know, have something that says, oh, this includes uh, the Eagles, I mean, I don't really know how many it mixes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but, you know, you know, this mix includes the Eagles. It gets taken down. The Eagles are never, you know, that that's just one, you know, kind of crazy example that I'm giving. But, um, you know, it could be nobody wants the new Megan Trainer single to be in a mix. You know, that's entirely possible. Nobody will, you know, you know and so what companies are really looking to do, like, you know, Dubset in particular is, you know, resolving that problem by creating a scalable solution to automate this process and provide the rights holders with the ability to manage this content and then being able to actually funnel it and channel this content into the areas where it would actually compensates the DJ and the publishers, uh, uh, the labels, and ultimately the artist uh, who both wrote the song and who who uh, who performed the song um, to kind of really uh, you know paradigm shift what happens in mixed culture to for for everybody and that's a it's a cool it's a cool thing it's a it's it's a you know we think it's a noble effort. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Dubstep's also um, has a huge database of, I guess, as part of that, right? Of uh, a fingerprinted, um, you know, or a fingerprint database, essentially, of, of tracks yeah. that are coming out, right? So. It, the, the technology, while not getting obviously into the weeds here, is that not only does it use just fingerprinting, um, but it uses a lot of proprietary technologies and algorithms to actually be able to discern um, down to uh, a very few seconds uh, what's in a mix every few seconds. And that requires a lot of technological heavy lifting and a lot of, a lot of algorithmic magic um, that they've been working on for the last four years, and it's finally ready to kind of come out of the garage. So it's a very exciting technology for, for the DJs, for the rights holders, and for the people who want to hear this music everywhere legally. One thing I want to ask about is the U.S. Copyright Office, how they, um, I guess, recently recommended you know a, a, a global database or a comprehensive database of the whole music rights ownership um, with the unique identifiers and messaging standards. It sounds like that is something that that does. Dubs that really the only one who's kind of pioneering that or are there others? I mean, no, I mean, there are a lot of initiatives that are focused on trying to establish this, um, you know, without getting too much into the weeds. You know, the problem is that you run into kind of this discussion where it's about data. Right. And it's about sharing data and it's about transparency of data. And what you have to remember is that the legacy music business in general, no, I'm not calling out anybody in, in particular, but I'm just going to make kind of a, a, a generalization here is that, you know, these are legacy companies that have to protect their assets right? <laughs> and they have to be very, very measure three times and cut once before they decide what to share. And there's also kind of information that that is at the especially at the executive level um, where decisions are made to sh about sharing data where it's automatically a no. And the sharing of data is automatically a no because there's a couple of things. It's obviously a people perceive it as a competitive threat. Mm -hmm. If everybody knows what I own, then they can come and take away my artist. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's competitive threat where that says, well, if they're being caused a problem and it's causing a problem for me, I'd rather have it cause a problem for them and I'll deal with the problems that I'm having because of it. You know, there's a lot of machinations, competitive problems here. And we work in a, you know, pathologically competitive business where sometimes when you look at your feet, you're not necessarily looking ahead into the future. And that, that sort of, you know, mentality, which is, which is dissolving, right? It's getting better and better over the last six years. I've seen it, you know, actually magically happen before my eyes, but it's not perfect yet. Um, you know, that's, that runs in stark contrast, you know, that King Kong runs a stark contrast to the Godzilla that is kind of transparent information and sort of innovation technology. <laughs> so those two kind of wage that war between transparency and, and data being able to be shared and, you know, having legitimate reasons to protect what you own for competitive purposes. I mean, these are companies that need to stay in business, that want to stay in business. So trying to find a happy medium there is, is really the difficult thing, which has led to a lot of friction. Um, there was something that was attempted in Europe called the Global Repertoire Database that ultimately, you know, there was a lot of discussion around that ultimately didn't work um, because of, you know, uh, funding requirements and other things where people were, you know, somebody had to pony up to build this thing and it, w and it wasn't gonna, and it just ultimately, nobody felt the juice was worth the squeeze, even though the industry wants it. Um, 
the famous argument that people always have is, this is great, we're going to build it. And then when somebody says, okay, awesome, let's pay for it. <laughs> and everybody points to the guy next to him. <laughs> right? So it's kind of this, you know, this, this thing where, yes, we need it, but who's going to pony up and who's going to pay for it um, is, also, is also the issue. So there's politics and there's development money and there's timeline, there's competency, there's the understanding of the issues at the highest levels of, you know, those who have to double down and actually put money into this. Um, you know, so but we're, that's why we exist, right? That's what, why we fought the good fight for the last seven years and we're winning. But it's not over yet. <laughs> um, so we just have to keep moving forward. That makes sense. Yeah, no, it does seem, especially with private sector, I mean, there's the whole competitive advantage thing. So, um, yeah, it makes sense that they wouldn't be just apt to sharing everything that they know about everything because obviously uh, they have a business to run, right? So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and every right, everybody has to remember, like, at the end of the day, this is the music business, not the music friendship or the <laughs> charity. Right? Yeah, the music philanthropy, right? People, artists want to get paid for their content, right? Managers want to get paid. Uh, people who run venues certainly want to get paid. The people that work at record labels, you know, don't volunteer because they just simply love music. So they'll stay in the office for 12 hours a day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everybody's got to pay the rent and send their kids to school or buy kibble for their dogs or whatever. They do. <laughs> or cats. So, so we, have to, we have to figure out how this actually works for everybody in the chain. And that's, again, kind of what we, we try to work on. So in terms of what you guys are working on, is there anything coming up that you're uh, excited about? You know, yeah, I mean, some of the initiatives, we have two work groups. Um, we're very excited about, you know, a couple of years ago, we introduced the first iteration of what we call the, the well, what the industry has adopted as a core metadata style guide. Um, and that's kind of uh, really helps normalize the way artists and titles are talked about how the parenthetical data, and when I talk about parenthetical data, it's saying like, you know, uh, uh, Led Zeppelin, the song remains the same live version. Yeah, or no, featuring X. Or featuring, right. And is featuring F-E-A-T dot? Is featuring, <laughs> you know, W slash, right? These are all the kinds of things that confuse digital storefronts. So we've worked on, and it's downloadable to anyone at our, at our website, which is the industry style guide. And, and our work group continues to iterate that. And it's actually kind of become the Bible over the last several years for current services. Um, and it's also become the Bible uh, for emerging startup companies who need to figure out like, okay, well, metadata needs to be displayed. I'm going to be ingesting it. What is the right way to do this? And now we've kind of put a benchmark um, in the world that's publicly accessible that's able to do that. That's an initiative that we have and we continue to work on because things continue to change. Yep. Um, you know, we're still very supportive of DDEX. We're very supportive of an ISRC registry, um, you know, a place where labels can go and actually find out if a code is real or spoofed or if it's a duplicate or anything like that. It's very important for those who process royalties to do that. So we're in the process of talking about that. Nice. So would that be actually combining, like if there's multiple uh, codes for a single track, uh, just because it's going on a compilation, they don't have the original, maybe combining them, you know, if, if it's in a... Central? Yeah, and we actually have a, a, a pretty interesting infographic on our site that we created also called Proper Care and Feeding of an ISRC. So <laughs> it actually um, is kind of a, you know, the, the comic book version of being able to tell artists, like, when you are creating an asset for yourself and you are creating a recording that will be socialized in some way, either be put up on a digital service or um, 
even just distributed promotion, promotionally, when is the right time to assign an ISRC code? So I'm not going to go into the gory yeah, details. Yeah, no, we'll link to that. You can download, the, you can download an infographic and really kind of get a nice, um, you, know, uh, you know, put your pinky toe in as to what and why the ISRC code is important and how you should be applying it to your, both your music and your music videos. That, that's, that's, that's globally. It's, it's not pertinent only to the U.S. It's a global, global document. The, in fact, the IFPI actually uses that document now on their, uh, on their website for, uh, for ISRC. Nice. And is there a global, um, I think one of the recommendations of that recent report from the Berkeley School of Music was, uh, you know, a central, if, you know, two artists have the same name or an artist changes their name or, or things like that, which is obviously a pretty huge part of the yeah. uh, metadata. Is, is there any initiatives on that happening? Well, um, artist disambiguation is the problem. And that means that there, you know, it could be, um, you know, Joe Smith it could be one of any hundred of different, you know, members of, of a different a different group. Um, your band name, you could have the same band name as somebody else. There's a, on my record label is a band called H2O um, that I released uh, their first record from. And there's also like a hip hop remix uh, group called H2O as well. And there's like two or three others. So how do you know, and how do you, how do you disambiguate those artists and how do you make sure that the right catalog is affiliated with a different artist? There's an identifier that is um, emerging right now called ISNI, I-S-N-I. Um, and it is, uh, it actually came out of the library world. It came out of the OCLC, which is, uh, uh, the library sciences organization that actually was talking about authors and it was expanded to music several years ago. Um, uh, and the, and what that does is able to essentially assign every artist or performer a, or composer, a unique number that they can then affiliate to their works. Um, and it's public. It's not a private thing. It's like the card catalog. It's like, you know, the, uh, it, it's, it's not a private thing like a social security number or whatever, you know, other entities call it, but it is a identifier for an artist that allows, um, for transparency and to be able to, for artist disambiguation to take place and resolves a lot of those issues where, you know, if you search for somebody on, on Spotify or any other digital service, you know, sometimes you'll see, you know, four or five different listings for the same artist because there's different kind of combinations. Is it J spacey? Is it J hyphen Z? Is it, you know, is it, you know, and these are all ways that, that sadly computer systems will look at strings in different ways and interpret those, those things in searches in different ways. So being able to normalize that to a number, which, which is character sets, um, you know, which is, you know, a number is, is a unique identifier, no matter which character set in, you know, Western character set you're using or even in Chinese, yep. <laughs> you know, a number is a number is a number, <laughs> Yeah. you know, and that's really kind of, uh, what ISNI is trying to do. So that's the huge initiative right now. And there is currently no, um, music oriented ISNI registrar. Um, but there is one being worked on, I believe. And, uh, very soon, you know, there'll be the record companies will be actually uh, registering ISNI's themselves uh, for some of their catalogs. So ISNI is something uh, to definitely look at. It's a very exciting initiative. Very cool. Good. Any parting remarks, I guess, for uh, up and coming artists or labels or managers who are kind of new to all this? Any one, one tip? Yeah. I mean, just keep track of your stuff, use spreadsheets. And, you know, we talked a lot about the music assets and we talked about ISRC, which is the lifeblood of the, of really, you know, a, 
understanding how all these companies pay for tracks and, and making sure that you understand what ISRC is for all of your assets, but also understand that you know when you have a photograph that you're buying, make sure that you know the terms of use of that photograph. So when, when there's a digital service that asks for that photograph, can you use it? Do you know if you can use it or not? What are the terms that are associated with that? Because don't forget, photographers are artists too. Make sure that you have a database of your updated bio. You know, make sure that if somebody asks for it, there's a way for you guys to to, to get it out there. Um, when you're in this recording studio, um, which is a, another initiative that's taking place in, um, you know, the Give the Artist the Credit movement from NARIS, the Recording Academy in the U.S., that's kind of we're involved with as well. Um, make sure that when you're in the studio, you know the musicians that played on your on, on your on, on all of your recordings, the recording studio, the engineer, the date that you recorded this. All of this stuff will become important to your digital commerce future. So your Google Docs <laughs> are your friends when you're talking about the history because you may think that when you're hanging out, you know, half in the bag in the studio, you're going to remember every person that played. <laughs> Years later, you're yeah. No. Remember. <laughs> so it's kind of good. So, you know, you know, your fifth beetle may be your nerdiest friend who wants to keep track of all of your underlying information and, and be able to do that because that will become an asset to sell in the future. It may not be the, the biggest asset that you have to sell. Um, you know, it may not be like merch or live performances or even, you know, music if you get a hit, hit video on, on YouTube or, or, or a song that streams several million times. But it is going to be money in incremental revenue as people continue to need this contextual information to build value into their digital services. So keep your spreadsheets uh, and keep track of what it is and you know learn more about what metadata is. That's my, my parting shot is that metadata is money and unless you pay attention, you're screwing yourself. Awesome, perfect, great advice. Thank you so much for being on the show and uh, all your tips and tricks and uh, all the initiatives that you're, uh, that you're working on and uh, we really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, man. And uh, one final thing is uh, musicbiz.org is the website and you can find me on Twitter, uh, Bill WNYC. Awesome. We'll link to that. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. Be sure to check out paidforedm.com and let us know what you think of the show, what you want to hear, and even submit any questions you'd like answered right here on the Paid For EDM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe by iTunes or your favorite podcast app.